Thank you for that prayer, John. This morning, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Gospel of Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7. If you're watching us by live stream this morning and you don't have a Bible, that's okay. I think you'll be able to follow along easily as I work through the message this morning. We are taking a break this morning from our sermon series on the Gospel of John, and we are looking at a traditional Christmas passage. In fact, one of the most familiar Christmas passages of all in Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7. And we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So we are looking at a traditional Christmas passage this morning. We will do the same thing this Thursday evening for Christmas Eve. And then next Sunday morning, we will come back to the Gospel of John and we come to the very end of chapter 6, which actually provides a good opportunity for us to kind of look back on this past year and look ahead to the year to come. But this morning, I really want all of us to focus on one thought, one term, and that is the sovereignty of God the sovereignty of God. And that is our first point this morning. Now, I want to be mindful this morning that we use all kinds of terms within evangelical Christianity that maybe not everyone is familiar with. And sometimes we just kind of casually toss these terms around. And maybe you've wondered, what exactly is the sovereignty of God? Now, there are a number of different ways we could look at this, but I want to give you one working definition of what it means that God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control and that nothing happens without his direction or permission. All things are under God's rule and control and nothing happens without his direction or permission. God works not just some things, but all things. All things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. His purposes are all-inclusive and are never thwarted, Isaiah 46.11. Nothing ever takes God by surprise. The sovereignty of God is not merely that that God has the power and right to govern all things, but that he does so, always. And without reservation or without exception. Let me say that again. It's very important this morning. The sovereignty of God is not merely that God has the power and right to govern all things. But that he does so. Always. And without exception. And one of the most important examples of God's sovereignty is the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. 
In the Old Testament prophets, excuse me, prophecy of Micah, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Micah says more than 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, Micah proclaims under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So hundreds of years before Christ is ever born, Micah says that a ruler is going to come for Israel, is going to be born for Israel. He will be born in Bethlehem. And this one who is to come will actually be someone who is from ancient times. In Galatians chapter 4, in verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. That famous phrase, but when the time had fully come. Some of you may remember a few years ago, I did an entire sermon just on that one little phrase, but when the time had fully come. It means that history and the salvation plan of God were fully pregnant and about to give birth. It was time. It was time, the right time, for the Son of God to come into the world. John MacArthur writes this, If events at the dawn of the first century had progressed just ordinarily, Jesus would not have been born in Bethlehem. But God worked in amazing and powerful ways to make the Lord's birth occur precisely at the right time and place thus verifying his own prophetic word. God orchestrated Joseph and Mary's visit to Bethlehem and the circumstances related to it in such a way that his son was born exactly according to plan. That's the thought this morning, that God so orchestrated all the events, all of them, that his son was born at exactly the right time. Jesus Christ was born in the exact place and at the exact time that God the Father had ordained for him to be born. So God is sovereign over all of the details surrounding the birth of his son. And our second point this morning is the sovereignty of God and a Roman emperor. The mighty Caesar Augustus, ruler of the Roman Empire, became a key figure in the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. The mighty Augustus, even to this day, considered one of the greatest emperors ever to rule over the Roman Empire. But he was completely oblivious to his role in Christ's birth, although God was moving in his life in ways that he could not possibly have understood. He was a pagan emperor who was ignorant of Scripture. Now, historically... Caesar Augustus was a fascinating, powerful ruler. This is who God used. He was born Gaius Octavius Octavian in 63 BC. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. And he came to power in a struggle with Mark Antony. And he ruled the Roman Empire from 27 BC to AD 14. And he exhibited great military, political, and social skills. 
It was the great Augustus who brought about what was known as the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana was the great Roman peace. For a period of approximately 200 years, there was relative peace and stability throughout the Roman Empire. It was the great Augustus who led the construction of the massive road system that was so famous in the Roman Empire. And it was Augustus who eliminated the rigid borders that had existed between provinces so that travel could be easier from one province to another. And it was God using this man, the Roman peace, the massive road system, the free travel that enabled the early church to take the gospel to all parts of the known world at that particular time. You see, when the time had fully come, at just the right time, God sent his son into the world. And it reminds us of Proverbs 21.1, where it says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. And we can be sure that the heart of the great Caesar Augustus was in the hands of God. And he directed Caesar to do exactly as he wanted him to do. God so moved in the heart of the Roman emperor that a decree, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Do you know why he ordered that census? Because God wanted him to right at that time. Remember, If the prophecy of Micah is to be fulfilled, Mary and Joseph somehow have to be moved from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Again, in verses 1 through 3, we read in those days, in those specific historical days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was Gossira, each that is a specific kind census. It was a taxation census. And in a taxation census, the people registered their names, their occupations, their property holdings, and family members to the Roman equivalent of our IRS. But what's really interesting is that the Romans did not require people to move for a census. That was not one of the requirements. However, it was very important to the Jewish people to return to their place of ancestry, to the place of their lineage and heritage. Very important to them. We see this in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. We see this in the book of First Chronicles in the Old Testament. The meticulous care that was given by the, Melit- by the Levitical priests to chronicle, to write down everyone's exact heritage and ancestry. And so it was here. And another just kind of interesting side fact, according to history, Caesar's census was not carried out in Palestine for about two to four years after it was first announced. Back then, of course, communication was nothing like it was now. News traveled slowly. They had this massive empire with this massive people that had to be included in the census. And so it was about two to four years before it actually was carried out in Palestine after it had been announced, but it was exactly, it was exactly when God wanted it to happen. So God rules and reigns over the Roman Empire and over the great Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. 
Well, our third point this morning is the sovereignty of God and Jesus' earthly parents. Not only was God moving in the life of Caesar Augustus, he was also moving in the hearts of two teenagers named Mary and Joseph. In verses 4 and 5, we read, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, that's where his lineage is at, which is called, notice, Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Very important that he goes there. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, remember that Joseph was a righteous man. We know that from the four Gospels, especially from the Gospel of Matthew. He was a young Hebrew man. And a young Hebrew man who was righteous before God would be very concerned about returning to the place of his family heritage. His lineage, his ancestry would have been very important to Joseph because he knew it was very important to the Jews and he being an orthodox, righteous Jewish person needed to be in the right place for this census. So Joseph makes the long trip to Bethlehem with the pregnant girl to whom he is pledged to be married. Now, another kind of interesting side note here is some historians and Bible students wonder whether Mary really had to accompany Joseph to the registration. Couldn't Joseph just went to register the family because it would have been in the man's name? Couldn't he have just gone there by himself and spared Mary this long trip? Well, we really don't know for sure. She may have gone because she had to sign some official document or to verify her own ancestry. The Bible really doesn't tell us. But it could be that Mary didn't have to go. But Joseph wanted her to go. And though it would be a difficult trip and a long trip, it could be that Joseph had Mary go so that he could protect her at all times. Remember, her pregnancy was scandalous. They were pledged to be married, but the marriage had not yet been consummated. Mary undoubtedly was the focus of criticism, of harsh sayings. It could be that Joseph was such a loving man, caring man, that he didn't want to let Mary out of his sight. Well, we really don't know for sure, but ultimately we know this. Mary went to Bethlehem so that Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 could be fulfilled. God, God made sure they were in Bethlehem at the exact time that Mary's child was to be born. I just want you to think about that with me this morning. God arranged all of these details. The census, which was carried out two to four years later, at the exact time, so Mary could be in Bethlehem at the exact right time. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She didn't give birth on the way there. She didn't give birth on the way home. She gave birth right there in Bethlehem. It says the time came for her to give birth. Did you know that in every normal delivery, without complications, in every normal delivery that every child is born right on time. Did you know that? They're always born on time. 
We say things like, oh, she was born a week early. Or he was born a couple of weeks late. No, she wasn't. And no, he wasn't. No, a baby's always born exactly when God wants them born. And so arranges and so works in a mother's physical being that the baby comes at exactly the right time. And when Jesus was born, he wasn't just on time physically. He was on time in God's eternal plan to bring the hope of salvation into the entire world. So Jesus wasn't just on time physically. He was on time eternally. He wasn't born a minute early and he wasn't born a minute late. He was on time when the fullness of time had come. And not only that, but Jesus was born in the exact setting and place that God had chosen. In verses 7 and 8, we read, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. God chose a manger, a feeding trough. God decided that Jesus would be wrapped in strips of cloth. God knew, God arranged, that there would be no room in the inn. You know, it's interesting, this time of year, and being a pastor, you just naturally tend to read different articles from different websites. And it seems like every time at this year, somebody comes out with an article or two questioning what the manger really looked like or what it was really like. Was it like a barn? Was it a cave in the side? Was it more like a house setting? And the answer is, we don't know exactly what it looked like. And in a sense, it's just kind of an intramural debate because what is important is Jesus was born in very lowly, humble settings. He was born in poverty because that was the design of God. Jesus had come for all people. He hadn't just come for the wealthy. He had come for the poor. And he had come for the poorest of the poor. He had come for all people from everywhere in the world. And we look at a passage like Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. And even if we've read it a hundred times or two hundred times, we must never lose our awe and wonder that God was ruling and directing every single detail to cause it to happen, just like it did. And we should be thrilled with that. We should be fascinated by that. We have to be careful. Sometimes it is so easy to see God's sovereign hand in the past. Whether it's in the birth of Christ or some historical event, we say, oh yeah, God was sovereign. I can see that in all of the details. But do we believe that God is still sovereign right now? Right now. On this 20th day of December, 2020, Do we believe that God is ruling and directing all the details in our world right now on this day? Do we really believe that? So easy to see that in the past. But do we believe that's happening right now? Our fourth point this morning is the sovereignty of God. 
and the worldwide pandemic. Forgive me for stating the obvious this morning. We have all been through an extraordinary year of disruption and unexpected changes. Not just the United States. The whole world has been dealing with the coronavirus. Our vocabulary now includes terms like masks and social distancing and lockdowns, etc., etc. You could add other terms. Terms that we weren't even cognizant of and using one year ago today are now part of our everyday vocabulary. And the disease itself and the restrictions related to it have been extremely controversial and debated ad nauseum. Just a little homework. When you get time, look up that little phrase, ad nauseum. It's an, actually a Latin phrase. And it means to debate something or talk about something for so long that it becomes tedious. It wears you out. And you become nauseous. Do you feel like that right now? I think that's probably a pretty good description for where we are at as a people right now. Many people including many Christians, have come down on one side or the other side of this debate. And as I mentioned back in November, our nation is divided. Many of our churches are divided. And in some cases, our families are divided. And let's be honest this morning. Let's be honest. It's not going to be over anytime soon by the most conservative estimates. By the most conservative estimates, this is going to be going on for another three or four months. And many of us, if not all of us, I'll put myself at the top of the list for this one. We've all had a bad attitude this year. We just have. We don't like something mad at those people on the other side, mad at some government official, mad at the government as a whole. You know what? This coronavirus has really exposed our hearts. It really has. We're not as Christ-like as maybe we thought we were. We're not as godly as maybe we would have liked to think we were. But I want to give us a challenge this morning, a loving challenge. As Christians, we have a unique opportunity to show the love and gentleness of Christ and to grow deep in our walk with him. We have an opportunity perhaps unlike any we've experienced in our lifetimes. Back in 2003, John Piper came out with his famous book, Don't Waste Your Life. And that book, which challenged so many of us, convicted so many of us, he warned us, it is so easy to get our eyes off Christ and to focus on things that are trivial, on things that are temporal, rather than focusing on Christ and on things that are eternal and things that really matter. And he said, don't waste your life. Then in 2011, he came out with a, another small book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. 
where he talked about his own battle with prostate cancer. And he said, don't waste your suffering, whatever you're going through. Because when you suffer, you can become angry, critical, depressed, or you can allow your suffering to draw you as close to Christ as you've ever been to draw you into a deeper understanding and relationship with him. And he said, don't waste your cancer. If we were to write a book right now, maybe we could call it, don't waste your pandemic. Don't waste this time. It's an important time for us. This is a unique opportunity for us to show the love and gentleness of Christ. And I love the word gentleness because it so describes our Savior. He was so gentle, so meek, so lowly, so humble. Let's be like him. As I've mentioned before, especially be loving and gentle with those who are on the opposite side of the debate from you. Let's stop. Let's stop being mean to each other. Let's stop making sarcastic comments. Let's stop being critical of people who don't see it the way we do, who may be on the other side of the debate. And this is a unique opportunity to grow deep in our walk with Christ. It is. You know, we say things like, oh, Jesus is my all in all. In Christ alone. Jesus is my joy. He's my treasure. He's my greatest pleasure. Prove it. Prove it. Live that way. Folks, let's stop worrying about all the things that we can't control. And let's show people that no matter what happens around us, we have the joy of the Lord. And he gives us joy and peace and contentment no matter what the circumstances are. This time of year, one of the Christmas carols that we love to sing is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. There's an interesting story behind that song. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. But I think it fits very well with 2020. It was written in 1863 by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the famous poet. In 1863, the Civil War was raging mercilessly. Our nation was as divided as it's ever been. Many of our young men would not come home for Christmas that year. Many of them would never come home at all. And Longfellow's wife had died just two years earlier, tragically, when her dress caught on fire in a house fire that they had, and she died. And just recently at this time, his son, who was a soldier in the Union Army, had been seriously wounded by Confederate soldiers. And they brought his son home. And as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat nursing his son's wounds on Christmas Day, he heard the church bells ringing. And he wondered, in a world that was so dark and so divided, 
in the midst of his own personal tragedy and hardship. How could anyone sing peace on earth, goodwill toward men? But then he heard the bells on Christmas Day keep ringing and ringing. And it is then that he took up his pen and wrote the song. And in the middle two verses, he writes this. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And yet, and yet, pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the church bells are going to ring again this year on Christmas Day. They are all over the world. The church bells are going to ring again this year on Christmas Day. And we will be able to say with great confidence, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail and the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. We're going to make it through this. We are. Through the enablement and strength of Christ our Savior, we're going to make it through this pandemic. And you know why we're going to make it through? Because God is sovereign over all things. He rules and reigns over all of the details. We don't always understand them. We don't. But trust him. Trust him. Let's pray together. Father, help us. As we celebrate Christmas during this extraordinary year, help us to determine to show the love and gentleness of Christ to others. Oh, Lord, help us to be so like our Master, so like our Lord. And Father, help us Help us, Father, to grow deep in our walk with Christ, to take this opportunity to know him as deeply as we've ever known him, to love him as deeply as we've ever loved him. Oh, Father, don't let us waste this opportunity. Don't let us waste this time in our history. Help us to use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.